0: Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, As you're aware, Patrick is away this morning, and on occasion when he's away, he creates an opportunity for you to hear a voice from among the shepherds, and I'm honored this morning to fill that role. Um, I've given my lesson for this morning the title, Part B. You all might ask, wait, what happened to Part A? And that would be a good question. Well, Part A was given almost a year ago, which was the uh, last time that I stood before you, now, I know fully well that most of us have difficulty remembering details from a sermon from last week, so I don't expect you to remember a sermon from a year ago. I'm going to quickly recap that for you. However, if you become interested in Part A again, you can find the podcast on the, on the Fourth Avenue website. In that lesson, I introduced the social circumstance that Jesus had entered into over two millennia ago. It was a toxic environment. A society controlled by social, political, religious elites who wielded judgment and punishment upon people unmercifully if they did not conform to their rules and regulations. Into such a society entered Jesus. Someone who was proving to be an incredibly disruptive force from the perspective of the religious elites in particular. He confronted religious authority frequently, and people were getting confused and riled up over his teachings. He was guilty of such things as disrupting the temple courts and driving out merchants and disturbing the peace. And despite all of his disruptive activity, the crowds kept listening to him and the the, the crowds were growing in size and the religious leaders grew increasingly frustrated with him and they wanted to silence him so they schemed about how to trap and discredit him so that the people would stop listening to him and so they charged one of their experts in the law to question him teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law And I would like to ask you this morning, if you are willing, if you wear the name of Christ, if you embrace his teaching, to please confidently read with me aloud Jesus' response. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now that's no minor statement from Christ. For those two commandments are the ones that we have the greatest difficulty living out in our individual and our corporate lives. Historically, we have selectively obeyed these commands in our behavior towards our Christian brothers and sisters With our politics, both religious politics and yes, our secular politics too, and with how we behave towards all different manner and groups of people. The religious leaders of this time also struggled with Jesus' teaching and it angered them. Attempting to trap him and discredit him once again, another expert in the law challenged Jesus regarding his teaching. He said, Well, who then is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He asked. Then Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan of all things. Ah, yes, the dreaded Samaritans. Those people that the Jews hated. The parable speaks of itself. A man is robbed. He's stripped of his clothes. He's beaten. He's left in a ditch on the side of the road to die. A, a priest passes by, walks to the other side of the road to avoid him. A Levite passes by, walks to the other side of the road to avoid him. A Samaritan comes along, takes pity on him, gives him first aid, transports him to an inn, and pays for his continued care. And then Jesus asks the legal expert a question, and he phrases it this way Who do you think was a neighbor in this story? Now, that was a curious way to word the question, and it was a twist in the story that the legal expert wasn't expecting. You see, our minds automatically are conditioned to extend sympathy to the guy who was beaten and left naked and dying in the ditch. He's obviously the one who needs help, and if we were the ones who were lying in the ditch, we would hope somebody would help us. But Jesus doesn't allow the discussion to go that simply. Jesus phrases a, a question that has only one right answer, and it's the one that the legal expert didn't want to admit to. Subsequently, the legal expert is caught in his own trap. He has to admit that the neighbor in this case was the one who showed mercy. Thus, Jesus' answer to the expert's question, who's my neighbor? Well, it's the one that he and his people despised the most. That was his neighbor. And there lies the crux of our struggle with the two greatest commandments, how very hard they are for us to live into. You cannot claim to be a lover of God with all your heart and with all your soul and mind. If you do not love your neighbor, you cannot do the former if you are not doing the latter. And that is an uncomfortable truth that Jesus speaks to. And it's a truth that Satan attempts to distract us from. He works hard at twisting our minds into justifying the worst behavior toward people we don't like or who that we don't agree with or who don't agree with us whether it be through persecuting or oppressing, discriminating, bullying, harassing, demeaning, disadvantaging others, Satan will build frameworks of justification around such ungodly behavior. And on top of that, he deludes us into thinking that we can engage in such godly behavior and do it in the name of Christ. Okay, that was part A. Now for part B. Are you ready? Are you looking for an exit to escape through? (laughs) I really wouldn't blame you. I've been praying about this lesson for weeks, trying to muster up the courage to present to you the rest of what God's placed on my heart to share with you. And before we're through this morning, I might be the one looking to escape, but I'm going to give this my best shot. It was dawn. Early in the morning, everything appeared to be going normally as usual. That was until the disturbance began. This wasn't just any disturbance. No. You could tell this was different by the sounds. These were unmistakable sounds, these were the sounds of angry men approaching. Anyone of significant age would immediately recognize such sounds angry tones, taunting, gnashing of teeth, and viciousness in their voices. A mob was approaching. And there's no mistaking the sounds of a mob with vicious intent. These men were carrying rocks as weapons. And as they drew close, you could see the intent in their faces and in their eyes. How do I know? Because that's what happens in the eyes of angry people when it is their intent to mete out their brand of justice and take the life of another. In tow was a woman. She wasn't one of them. And she had a different look in her eyes than the rest of them. Her eyes revealed sheer terror. Fear was etched on her face as her body trembled uncontrollably. The crowd who had previously gathered around the teacher in the temple were forced to part and make way for this mob that was coming into their midst with this woman. These men were recognizable They were teachers of the religious law and Pharisees and they thrust the woman in front of the crowd and they squared off face to face with the teacher them looking at him and him looking back at them. Jesus knew who these men were too. They were the same religious leaders who hated his message saw him as a threat to their social order and had been trying to silence him. And the mock trial began. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. Now, what do you say? And they think they've got him trapped now. If he continues with his rebellious teaching against the established religious order and openly and publicly contradicts the law, they've got him. If he says to stone her, then he discredits this teaching he's been spreading about, and they've still got him. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Well, now, Jesus has a reputation for being a bit mysterious, and he doesn't disappoint on this particular occasion. He he doesn't respond to them at all. He just stoops down and starts writing in the dust of the ground with his finger. You can just see the expressions of exasperation on their faces as they're watching him do that, wondering if he's absolutely lost his mind. And all they can do is continue to press him for an answer. Finally, responding to their persistence, Jesus looks back up at them and he utters these words. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and he began writing in the dust of the ground again with his finger. Now we don't know what it was that he wrote, but whatever it was, the oldest among them dropped his rock and walked away, as did the next oldest. And then the next until finally they had all walked away. Now you would be correct in asking, what kind of a mystery is this moment? What just happened? To get an idea, I think we need to look at the broader context that Jesus had been confronting when it came to the religious and social order of their day. This was a society filled with sexual sin. To exacerbate that circumstance, this was a society filled with injustice, especially towards women. In fact, the way that their entire male-dominated culture viewed and behaved toward women would be morally bankrupt by our standards today. One example of this was their religious teaching that provided justification for a man to be able to divorce his wife for the least of offenses. And Jesus confronted them on that particular teaching as well. On that particular instance, they tried to trap him by asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, Jesus didn't make friends among these religious leaders with his answer. He didn't make friends at all. His answer directly exposed the hardness of their hearts as he directly confronted their ungodly behavior towards women. You see, in this society... And in their culture, women had no voice or rights, nor little any chance of having any of that. Their male-dominated structures simply would not allow it. It was a misogynistic society whereby their practice and behavior was supported and perpetuated by their religious teaching. Their teaching was that men had complete authority over women, and yes, they could cast their wives out for the least of reasons. And to make matters worse, women who had been divorced and thrown out of the home by their husbands were mostly defenseless in this culture. It was rare in their economy, their economic system, for women to own property, to hold jobs, to have careers as we think of it today. And so many of them, for so many of them, their only option for survival was prostitution. Men knew this and they used fear to control their wives, Jesus directly confronted such matters of the heart. And oh yes, adultery was rampant even among the religious communities. And through his teaching, Jesus assigned standing, social standing to women that they didn't have previously, contradicting the social and religious order and teachings of the time. He understood what was going on among them. And they were none too pleased that he had the moxie to point it out publicly. And it also infuriated him that the people were actually listening. His crowds were growing. And they were, they, they were, he was becoming a terrible threat to them. So back to the moment at hand. To understand this story, we must first recognize that this moment of confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders was not about confronting the woman's sexual sin, whatever form that had taken place in. This was just a contrived excuse to create a confrontation and discredit him in front of a crowd of witnesses. Instead, it's clear that Jesus' response to the mob was to confront their behavior towards her, as well as their own hypocrisy. Whatever history he was referring to regarding their sin, it seems that the oldest among them were the first to recognize it. And eventually all of them recognized it and they walked away. Whatever it was, Jesus exposed to the light of day and to the crowd of witnesses that were there how unjust the behavior of the mob had been. Now, if you conduct a careful reading of the gospel letters, you will note that Jesus' confrontation with the mob here was not an isolated event. This was an ongoing conflict that had many such interactions. And I want to suggest to you that it's a conflict that hasn't ended and it still exists 2,000 years later. If we think that our religious community has escaped the behavior of the mob, then I suggest to you that we need to confront some recent history. And it's insidious history that I'm referring to. The manner in which the religious community at large has behaved toward people with sexual sin is testimony to how we have become the mob. The insidious part of it is is that we have used the name of Jesus to justify our mob-like behavior. We do this not through Christ's example or his model or his teaching to the contrary. It's not him that we're following when we do this. Someone someone unfamiliar with this history might ask, well, well, Trace, what, what are you talking about? Well, there are a lot of examples, but I want to look deeper into this story for one, and I think this will resonate with most of you who have studied this particular text before. One of the most common questions asked, I think it's a brilliant question, is this, where was the guy? Where was the dude Why wasn't he being dragged in along with the woman? And I think that's a a valid question if you've ever had it before. I've heard that question many times. However, let me ask a slightly different question that you may not have considered before about this story. The text doesn't reveal this. It just says that she was caught in the act of adultery. But let's drop our assumptions for just a moment about what we think that might mean. What if it wasn't a guy at all? What if the adultery spoken of was with another woman? Have you ever considered it? Well, let's chase the thought for a moment. If you were in the courtyard and you were in the temple there, uh, among the crowd of witnesses who were witnessing this event, what would your reaction have been if the adultery being referred to was a homosexual act rather than a heterosexual act? Would it have made any difference to you? Or more importantly, would it have made any difference to Christ? Do you think that he would have altered his response to the mob if that had been the case? Well now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking that this wouldn't make one whip of difference to Christ, and you think his response to the mob and his behavior and actions would have been the same regardless, I concur, I think he would have been undeterred. Jesus would have been, responded the same regardless. That wouldn't have derailed him. The point that I'm addressing is that historically homosexual behavior has triggered something else in the minds of Christians who would immediately start looking around for a few rocks to pick up. How many Christians do we know who would become the mob that would throw rocks of condemnation at her? and today would attempt to do it in Jesus' name. Now, in all fairness, I have been in plenty of places where, with Christians who would throw rocks of condemnation irrespective of, of whether it was a homosexual act because it's common for us to have adverse reactions to sexual sin in ways that we don't react to other sin. But adding on the possibility of a homosexual act or behavior would increase the viciousness of their response exponentially. To my shame, I can name a time in my life when I would have joined the mob. My perception of Christ's teaching was that distorted. And throughout history, we can point to atrocity after atrocity whereby Christians have persecuted and oppressed people who, they, who disagree with them on this particular topic. All you have to do is search the news headlines during our lifetime of people who have been drugged behind vehicles because they were gay or they were hung, or they were shot, or they were beaten to death, among other deplorable behavior. In fact, there are countries today where it is still legally punishable by death, and that sentence is still carried out, and my life would be in jeopardy this morning for even speaking to the topic. If you want to know what those countries are, just Google it. Someone might say, yeah, but those aren't predominantly Christian nations folks, the history of persecution and murder that I speak of is our country's history. It happened right here in this land. But we didn't learn that example from Christ or his teaching. We didn't get it from him. Okay. I'm going to speak directly now to the women of the church for just a moment because I think they're the most likely ones who can do what I am about to ask. Ladies, I know this might be a, a bit of a stretch, but if anyone can do it, I, think, I believe in you. I think you can do it. I'm not so sure about the men. I'm one of them. Um, but I know how men are wired, but, but, but I also have some understanding of how women are wired, and I believe you can do this. Let me ask you, to please reach inside yourselves, tap deeply into your power of empathy. Then I want you to transport yourselves two millennia ago into this moment in the temple courtyard. And with all the empathy you can muster, place yourself in the mind and the heart of this terrified woman. You're standing there in the midst of that crowd overwhelmed with humiliation and brokenness and fear and terror and shock and judgment and betrayal by a world gone mad. Jesus leans over. And says, hey, you can look up now. Look around. And still trembling, you lift your head and you slowly shift your eyes about. Where'd they all go, he says? Has no one condemned you? And you look and you see that they're all gone. Moments earlier, you wanted to scream at the entire world even though no one would have listened to you. But now, after you're confronted with this Jesus, Everyone is listening to you. But the only communication you can muster in this moment is the shortest verbal testimony spoken by anyone in all of written scripture. No one. And then he utters those words. Words that reverberate across heaven and earth and time. The Son of God, the King of Kings, the one who would purchase your freedom with his blood, and now seats on heaven's mercy seat, stands there in front of you with his arms held open wide, and he says, Neither do I condemn you. Ladies, With the full burden and weight of living in that time and in that culture and in that society, can you feel the gravity of that redemptive moment with Christ? Moments earlier, you were convinced you were going to die and you had no voice to object to that verdict. But now you are confronted with this moment of grace and deliverance unlike anything you've ever experienced. Can you feel her crushing sense of hopelessness being lifted? If you need to stay in that moment for a bit, that's fine. It's okay to stay there with him. And while you do that, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to... Pull back two millennia later, I'm going to speak to the broader church. Church, do you see the contrast that Christ has presented for his church to decide between? What kind of church do we choose to be? We have the choice to pick up rocks and join the mob, and many a church has chosen that path, versus the choice of embracing the example of our Lord and and being a place of refuge and deliverance from fear and condemnation. This is the choice that Christ puts before us. Now, I offer this next example only as an example, but I think it's a powerful one and it's a very practical one for us as well. I will call you to remember the spiritual direction for this congregation offered about three-and-a-half years ago on the topic of same-gender sexual relationships. Now, nothing's changed in respect to the specific spiritual direction that was offered up by your shepherds on that theological topic. I have nothing new to announce to you this morning about that, other than to say that we continue to study, uh, because that's what seeking churches do, and that's what we do. We continue to study. We won't stop studying, and we won't apologize for not stopping studying. What I want to emphasize to you this morning, though, is the broader message that was offered. And the shepherds know what we talked about extensively, but that doesn't mean you know what we talked about extensively. And perhaps we didn't communicate as effectively as we could or should have, but what we offered up was to condemn the history of persecution and abuse and oppression and bullying and harassing of people who either experience same-gender sexual attraction or people among those who, who simply disagree with our theological understanding. Our theological statement was made within the context of our knowledge of the cold, historical fact of toxic and mob-like behavior towards that population of people, among other populations of people, and some who justify such horrid behavior in the name of Christ. Your shepherds believe that is behavior that must be repented of. People's disagreement... To any point of theological understanding that we possess doesn't give us right to engage in ungodly behavior towards them that wouldn't do a thing for advancing Jesus' teaching his example and his model for his church we went so far as to say that 4th Avenue is a safe environment for anyone to come and worship free from that kind of behavior and your shepherds stand by that Our building renovation did not include bars on the windows and the doors. You can check with Steve. It's not on the materials list for this building. Bars weren't included. We welcome and love anyone who is seeking Jesus, and that's the identity of this congregation. We embrace the commands of Christ to love God. Love your neighbor as Jesus-defined neighbor, not as we sometimes selectively do along with his declaration that everything depends on this. Our spiritual guidance was and still is rooted in a phrase that has rung out from this pulpit time and again, and that phrase is empty hands and open arms. He's standing there in front of her with empty hands, open arms, and he calls us to emulate him. Christ certainly doesn't teach, to us, teach us to in any way resemble the mob. We have no rocks of condemnation in our hand, nor do we believe anyone's justified in hurling such rocks. Now, does that mean that we won't continue to discuss and study theological questions, including the question of homosexuality, among many other topics? Does that mean your shepherds won't continue to hold the theological understanding of such questions and offer spiritual guidance as we have previously? Folks, we're a church, and theological discussions are kind of part of what we do here. It's part of our DNA, and that will continue, and we will continue to study all manner of issues Oh, and by the way, if you haven't noticed, that's another subject your shepherds feel strongly about as demonstrated by our history. Specifically, there's no spiritual issue that is too taboo for us to study and talk about. There are plenty of other places where you could go whereby if you even mention certain subjects, you risk being pounded upon and ostracized for it. But here at 4th Avenue, your shepherds make it clear that our theological study takes place within the context of the two greatest commandments given as declared by Christ himself. Love God. Love your neighbor. Everything depends on that. We won't abandon that primary theology while we engage in discussion about other theological topics. Nor will we allow our phobias as conditioned into us by culture, some conditioned into us by heritage, to cause us to behave toxically or in an ungodly manner toward others. Mark, if you would make your way back to the stage. We seek to embrace the model given to us by our Lord and our Savior. Empty hands and open arms is a difficult teaching. we're not perfect. We've fallen short. We recognize that we have much to do to overcome in order to be able to truly obey Christ's teaching in this regard. But it is our earnest desire that our faith be more than just anthems and more than just the songs that we sing, but rather our faith in God can be seen in how we love others, even those who disagree with us. And it's the prayer of our shepherds that we resemble the one whose name we wear. Lord, I pray this morning for peace and grace to be among this congregation.